This is the Better Wealth Podcast with Caleb Williams. Hey everyone, welcome to another podcast. This episode is actually going to be very interesting because I had the opportunity to sit down with Rebecca Walser and she's a tax attorney and we talked a lot about her philosophies about financial planning, but then we got to hear a lot about our tax situation. I met Rebecca in Marco Island when I went down there for a conference. She was there really impressed with how she carried herself and just how she's killing it. And then I went home and realized that she's on Fox and Friends she's all over the place. She just came out with a book called Wealth Unbroken, which talks about her story, uh, but then also talks about her philosophy with how money works. And so I read the book, was really impressed and reached out to her. And with her busy schedule, she finally had an opportunity to sit down with me. And I wanted to pick her brain as it relates to, you know, even being a female in a male dominated space, um, her philosophy about how money works. But then as a tax attorney, I wanted to get her take about how we should think about our money. How should we how should we think about taking control of our money as it relates to taxes? Um, she goes into a, with her client. She talks about, OK, you know, a lot of people talk about being risk diversified. Part of that means being tax diversified. And as you'll see, a lot of people are putting a lot of their money in accounts that they might not understand that there's some tax consequences down the road that they don't even know that they're there. So you're going to hear um, her passion. You're going to uh, know very quickly why she's so successful. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, here's Rebecca. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Cub. Great to be here. So one of the things that I am just so impressed with you, we were talking about this before recording, is you are all over the place. Like you're on Fox, you're on, you're on the news, you're like on the radio station, you're, you just wrote a book. So I'm hoping for my listeners, like, how did you get to where you are? Because obviously this doesn't happen overnight, but like, how did the book happen? And how did you start getting on like TV talking about money? That's a great question. It's, it feels like a long, long journey. My background is a little bit unique in the sense, Caleb, that I um, graduated with my undergrad in finance and I worked in finance for a little over a decade before I actually became a lawyer. So I actually uh, was in the financial world and that's, that is my world. I mean, I love math. I talk about it in the book. I actually write how much math is so beautiful and how we should just respect it as such a, for the beauty that it actually is. I'm a math nut uh, and I love math because there's an actual correct answer. And I think that that is so refreshing. And especially today in this day and age of polarization and everything is gray area and can it be this way or should it be that way? Especially I'm a lawyer now and lawyers, we operate in the gray areas. That's why that there, there are so many lawsuits because one person sees it this way and the other person sees it a different way and, and a judge decides, right? And so that's why we have actual, uh, the judicial branch. But going back to math, I mean, that's why as a lawyer, I love math even more because there is a right answer. It's so black and so white. And so um, I loved math, but I, I kept running into finance and to tax, you know, and I always knew that I would get a postgraduate degree and, and specialize in something. I thought it, for the longest time I was going to be an MBA, but um, I worked in an international group with PricewaterhouseCoopers for years and 
to me, uh, working with nothing but Europeans and, and really the Asia Pacific realm, uh, an American MBA seemed irrelevant, to be honest. So what was really something that was going to be more effective and useful was to become a lawyer and specifically a tax lawyer. So then I went to law school and then, um, at University of Florida and graduated with honors. Then I went to NYU to get my advanced law degree in tax. So I really became this tax attorney. And I uh, came to Tampa and practiced with a boutique firm for a while. And I had like one of those epiphany moments, you know, where you just know your life is just in that moment changed forever. I remember when I took the job with the boutique firm, practicing with high net wealth and families and legacies and preparing for taxation of long-term taxation, taxation planning, avoiding estate tax, which is 40% if you have a taxable estate. So it's massive. And, um, I was meeting with a client at the client's office and we were in his conference room and he was at the head of the conference table and I was on one side as the tax attorney and his financial advisor was like on the other side and Mm -hmm. his advisor started talking first. Now, you know, to their defense, neither the advisor or the client actually knew my whole financial background. So they just thought I'm there as a tax lawyer. But this advisor starts talking and my ears literally start turning red. I can feel the heat (laughs) going to my ears. And I had on heels and I'm digging my heel into the carpet and I'm saying, you're just here as a tax attorney. You're just here as a tax attorney. You're just here as a tax attorney. And my brain answered me back and said, no, I can't do this. I have to be everything that I am. And so I knew at that moment that I would eventually leave and start my own practice and and get out of being pigeonholed as a tax lawyer because I really am a, a tax lawyer who's also a financial expert. And that's a very unique skill set. And I, you know, I think there's like less than 10 of us in the whole country. It's very rare. So that is what made me go into make my to my own practice. And so I, I opened my own holistic practice. It's been four years now. And for the first, I'd say two years, I was in this realm of, okay, I'm working with high-end people, high net income, high net worth, but you know, they're getting so many messages, you know, Caleb, they're getting all of these messages and all of these things. And I had such a unique perspective because of my background. And so I just started writing this book in my head, really, like, you know, here are the pitfalls and here are the problems. And I started realizing that the message needs to be heard by all Americans, especially now, it's so relevant. I mean, we are on the precipice of unimaginable change in our country and nobody's talking about it. And nobody's talking about it because it's so overwhelming and it can be so depressing that there aren't any readily uh, obvious solutions. And that's where the book came from is I have to get this message out to as many people as fast as possible. And the only way to do that in a sea of voices is to, is to write a book, as you know. You know, Rebecca, this is a, this is a, a wealth podcast. And, and one of my big missions is to understand that we are our greatest asset. And so to always invest in ourselves. But I want to take a step back because in reading your book, what I was very, very impressed with and, and almost taken back is you kind of shared your personal story. Yeah. And being touch on being a female in this space. And you're you're one of, like you said, 10. You're there's a there's very few people that have the tax attorney that are so passionate about money that are actually helping people with their finances, but you have a very, very unique perspective as it relates to helping people with their money and, and taxes and, and how they go hand in hand. What challenges did you face being a female growing, you know, growing up in this industry? 
Well, it's a great question. I mean, um, I think that I've always been in a male-dominated field. That's for sure. I mean, I think maybe finance is less male-dominated than than tax law specifically. Um, but but at the higher echelons, you, you're you're talking about male-dominated. I mean, there's just nothing. It's very rare for females to be at a very high level, and even even in the finance world, you know, it's just been like the banker um, mentality from the 1950s and the 1960s for uh, the longest period of time and women have women like me have uh, said gender's not going to hold us back and we're just going to go and do it and I went and did it and even still to this day you know I meet with people that are 20 or 30 years older than me at times and uh, because you know I'm in my mid 40s um, young 40s (laughs) I'll say and um, and you know they look at you and they think okay this is a a girl and she's young and she's blonde (laughs) so what can she possibly know right it's like all of the uh, the um, stereotypical thoughts, but I just have to start talking, you know, and that's where I've gotten through everything. I remember being at PricewaterhouseCoopers and I was in my, you know, twenties at the time and, um, people looking at me like, what is this girl doing in their room? And at these meetings, you know, and then I'd start talking and then that was the end of it. You know, they, they just all of a sudden understood, oh, okay. She knows what she's talking about. I love finding young people like yourself that have a clear uh, direction that know understand what they're passionate about are just going after it with everything because you have so much time to make such a huge long career for yourself and have such a huge impact on this world. So I'm so happy when I find someone like you. I have a lot of millennials on my team, you know, because I just am excited to be around them. They're 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 still excited to feel like they have, they have so much time left. And and I know I have so much time left too, you know, to work, but it's just it's just a matter of understanding what you're passionate about and not really letting stereotypes you know, and they, people will label you. I mean, they absolutely will label you, but you just have to, you know, talk your way through it, show your expertise. And we've only been a few minutes in on this, on this podcast. And I think people can already tell the, like your passion as, as, as you talk. And, and I think people are really attracted to that. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're talking about taxes where most people would want to fall asleep or just, you know, not want, not want to listen. And you like make it like, you make me want to be a tax attorney. And trust me, that would be <laughs> that's <like>, awesome. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> so your, your book, which by the way, if you're listening to this, um, go get this book and we'll have the show, show notes at the end. And I don't know where the best place to get it is, but Amazon. Your book, Wealth, Amazon, okay. Wealth Unbroken, you know, growing uh, wealth uninterrupted by market crashes taxes, and even death. Um, why, why the name Wealth Unbroken? Because um, I think that the conventional financial advice that we hear, that is shouted to us by a thousand different voices all around us, is that you should be uh, invested in the market. And I... I sometimes I think I'm I, I talk so much about the market that it's, it comes across like I'm anti-market. I'm not anti-market. I'm very much pro-market. In fact, I have been Stein's new book right here. You know, the Capitalist Code, which the Capitalist Code Ben Stein just wrote, is all about you know the fact that stocks have been one of the biggest wealth creators in the history of time in the United States of America. So I'm not anti-market. What I'm anti, I describe it in my book, Caleb, as a fiscal house. A fiscal house has a foundation. It has walls and it has a roof. In my book, I describe the market as the roof 
of your fiscal house. So it is a triangle. It's a roof and it's the shape of a triangle. And I call it the three corners of the triangle, stocks, bonds, and any variation thereof, ETFs, mutual funds, whatever. Most financial advice in America wants you or talks about these two asset classes, stocks and bonds, and any variation thereof as the sole way to generate and keep wealth. And the problem is, if you start looking at the beginning of the 1990s, we've had a real sea change in the market. We have now what I describe in my book as the new normal, which is extreme high highs followed by extreme low lows. And this is a pattern now that we've seen two times in the last two decades. We've seen two major market corrections in the last 20 years. And this is a pattern that will continue. And we know now that it will absolutely continue because we are now in the longest bull run in the history of our country. You know, in March, it'll be 10 years that if we make it to March, it'll be 10 years that we have had this bull run. Now, it's not the highest. It's not the deepest bull market yet because the deepest still was from the, the, the run-up of the 90s, which was 417%. The S&P 500 went up 417%. So we haven't quite eclipsed the depth of the bull run from the 90s when the internet came into um, being for the first time when cell phone technology came into being. So you can see why with uh, the 90s, why we had such a huge, massive explosion of wealth. But the problem with only having all of your eggs and the fiscal basket of the roof, the triangle of the market, stocks, bonds, or any variation thereof, is when the correction comes, it pretty much comes universally. In other words, every asset class goes down is depressed. And does that mean if you're holding Amazon or Netflix or Facebook or Alphabet, which is Google, that those individual stocks aren't good? Absolutely not. It just means that we had an overall market correction and everything is down. You know, Warren Buffett probably had the most prolific letter he's ever written to his shareholders this past February, February of 2018. And what he did was really interesting. He actually created a chart and he charted the last four major market corrections that there have been in the United States of America. And he charted exactly what happened with Berkshire Hathaway during those corrections. Corrections. And what you see is um, in the 49% correction of the dot com bus, which took three years to get to 49%, the Berkshire Hathaway lost over 48%. When the, the Great Recession happened and the SP went down 57%, you see that Berkshire Hathaway went down 50.7%. So what he was foretelling his shareholders is it doesn't matter that I am Warren Buffett and I'm the head of Berkshire Hathaway. When the market correction comes, you should be prepared to lose 50% of the value of Berkshire Hathaway because that is what happens when the market comes and corrects. So the problem with just following, as much as I love Ben Stein, the, the stock model only is that when you are at and you are in retirement, this is a wealth killer because people don't understand that when you're done working and you're done having that active income stream coming in, you have to live off the portfolio. And what the, the financial advisor doesn't tell you, what the stockbroker doesn't tell you, what the, the wirehouse guy doesn't tell you is that when the market corrects, if you have bought and hold through it. You can't touch that money. Not only can you not liquidate it, it's trapped because if you liquidate it, you're locking in your losses, but you have to not touch it for however many years it takes for it to grow back to its height. So with the Great Recession, it took us almost mm -hmm. five years, four over four and a half years to get back to the pre-crash level. So if you've got a retiree who's got to access that and augment social security with that, that is a no-go. That is a 
total losing proposition. So it is very important that we decide that, yes, there is a very important place for the roof. We always have to have a market-based position, and I'm not anti-market. There has to be a roof on top of our house, but we have to also have a foundation and walls built that are outside and separated from the market itself, stocks and bonds specifically. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's there's there's a lot that you touched there. Um, one of the things that I, I usually give as an example to clients, and I'm sure you've heard this and potentially use it as well, is if you have $100 and lose 50 of it, it takes 100% to get back to where you were. And so my, my when I work with people, it's like losing money is always a bad idea. And mm-hmm. yes, will, will it come back? You know, historically it has, but but it's not like a, it. It takes it takes a lot longer to get back because your money has to work twice as hard if you lose half of it. Right. So absolutely, uh, and you know the thing is too, Caleb, that, that, that it's a total n- misnomer and it's not true, and we should call it false, but we don't. Is that you get your money back? Because that's not true. I mean, if you look at the money that you lost and you had, you just you know put a little jar um, over there, a clear glass jar, and put the little piece of paper in it of everything that you lost and the date, right? And you take that jar with you till your deathbed, and you pull all those little pieces of paper out of the money that you lost, and you just multiply them from the year that you lost it to the year of your death at even a 5% return, you'll see that you know if you're a normal person that you've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars of compound earnings by losing that money. And so what's really happening is that is a true loss. It's gone forever. What's actually happening is we're not getting our money back. The money we had left right. is either growing to the pre-loss level or we're it's growing and we're also contributing and making contributions so that it also grows. So it's, we never get back the loss. Right. If you can protect against the loss and just get some kind of 5% nominal return, um, you'll, you'll see how much more uh, wealth you actually would have had. Uh, Rebecca, so in my book, I actually talk about the importance of control. And I think control is one of the things that most people freely give up unknowingly. And and it really, if you look at the the wealthy people in this country, they, they understand they're obsessed with maintaining and keeping full control, whether it's future tax stuff or and, and maybe it's just liquidity and access to capital. I want to touch on what your thoughts when you think of control and like, because I know that's a really big theme you personally, what you write about. And so, yeah, what's your thoughts on control and money? Well, I think that's the the biggest problem that's coming is is the lack of control of wealth um, that we, we will have in America. Um, you know, it, it is just starkly um, glaring at me, blindingly glaring is the word of, of how much wealth people are willing to build in these pre-tax buckets, you know, and, um, just if you just look at the bucket of pre-tax, we, we had the last numbers we've had on it is total government pensions, federal, state, and local. So all government pensions, all IRAs, all 401ks and all of its cousins, 403b, 457, 409a, all pre-tax wealth and any capacity possible, including government-run pension funds and you know co- corporate pensions, we are at about as of 2016, we are at about uh, 26 trillion dollars of all pre-tax wealth, mm. and that has taken us really 30 years to get to because the pre-tax wealth bucket didn't really exist before, if, ex- excluding pensions. But if you look at the 401k, it was written into the Revenue Act in 1978 and didn't really come into prominence and use until. 1981. So 
this has all been accumulated over really the last 30 years, excluding the pensions, which is a huge part of it. But th- when you think about it, I, and writing the book, you know, I was like, why? Why did, who thought this was a good idea? And I went back to see, was there any research done? Was there any white paper? Was MIT, was Wharton, was anybody deciding or looking at whether or not this was going to actually be a great plan for America? Because we are, you know, we aren't the, the wealthiest per capita, but we, we have the most, in my opinion, opportunity to take somebody from a nothing to an everything, depending on what they decide to do with their life, right? So we have this wealth of opportunity in this country. And did anybody look to see if this is the way we should actually retire? And of course, it happened by accident. The 401k was really written as a tax dodge for highly compensated executives. And it was rolled out as a retirement plan for all by accident. It really happened by accident. So when something happens by accident, nobody analyzes what the actual ramifications or the mathematical calculations are going to equate to. And so we've had such analysis. And if you look back in the 80s, because it seems so obvious now that it's such a bad idea. But if you look back at the 80s and you put yourself back in time, like back to the future, like, you know, just pretend you could go back down like Marty McFly, you know, and see what was going on then, what you see is, okay, the baby boomers were only 16 years old to 34 years old in 1981. The day Ronald Reagan was inaugurated in January of 81, we didn't have a debt problem. We had $980 billion of debt. It took all the way till October of 81 to get us to a trillion dollars of debt during Ronald Reagan's first term in office. We didn't have a debt problem in the 80s. So there was no massive concern about the amount of debt. And there were the, no one was thinking about the boomers retiring in mass some 30 years later. So now, though, you fast forward and Ronald Reagan was elected and um, he did institute a major sea change in tax policy that went into effect in 1987. So literally last year, 2017, we've been 30 years into this tax policy. And um, we did not reduce our spending. In fact, we increased our spending, but we reduced our taxable you know, revenue. So what you have after 30 years of low taxation, and when I say low taxation, what I'm saying is Ronald Reagan's tax code that has pretty much lived through these last 30 years took us to a level so low that we hadn't had that level since the 1930s. So what happened? What enabled that? Well, we came off the gold standard under Nixon. So now we could basically use debt and we use debt freely. And now 30 years later, after low tax rates rates for 30 years, we've done a really big disservice to America because we've given America service levels from the government, military levels from the government, social programs from the government, supported with debt not supported with tax revenue. And so now we think, because we've lived through these last 30 years of low tax policy, that this is normal, that normal tax rates are low, and yet we can spend all the money in the world. And we are spending all, we're spending a hundred billion dollars a month more than we're taking in, literally. And so we have become addicted to low tax and high spend, but now the can is going to stop. Because the cliff is ending and the can is about to go over the cliff. And that's where we are now, Caleb. We are on the verge of the largest transfer from worker to recipient in the history of time. We have never had anything like this before. And with the debt at $21.5 trillion, this is something that we cannot happen without massive 
tax cut, uh, tax increases, and massive benefit cuts. It is going to be one of the ugliest fiscal times in the history of our country, in the history of the world, really. And it's very scary. And why isn't everyone talking about this? So, so essentially, let, so I'm going to summarize what you said and, and correct me if, if there's anything wrong. So, so as a tax attorney, macro picture, where taxes have to go up and we have to start cutting programs mathematically, like there's no other way. And yet we're still having people put their money in accounts. We, and you said, you know, you know, pre-tax accounts. Um, a lot of them are qualified plans, 401ks, IRAs, where they're not taking responsibility of their tax today. They're postponing it to a future, unknown future, by the way. Um, as a tax attorney, is there a different, is there a retirement bracket? So it's all income bracket. Uh, and, and so what we're doing is, and what's kind of unique is we have all that money tied up in accounts and it's kind of similar to the national debt, which is, I mean, you could get really conspiracy. You could be, there could be some, some conspiracies, but the reality is the government, how much control do they have when you put your money into qualified plans? A hundred percent, a hundred percent control because they control the tax code. They control the RMD schedule. In other words, the RMD chart that tells you when you must take money out and at what level you must take it. And then they control um, the, 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 the tax code. So, you know, all the government has to do is, you know, change the RMD um, schedule of how much you have to take out. And then they can at the same time change the tax code and they can force you to take out more and they can force you to pay a lot more on the tax. So they, they have a hundred percent control. We don't like to think of that because that's us becoming a non-free country. You know, the nationalization of all of the pre-tax wealth that exists is a very scary thing, but they don't need to nationalize it because it's already theirs. Mm -hmm. They already control it. We're, we're just, already we, willingly giving them their... It's exactly right. We're already saying, hey, I'll pay you later. Let me know what the bill is later. Thanks a lot. So you already did this. My next question for you is actually going to like be about taxes. Would there be anything that you would add at a macro or a micro level? As a tax attorney, you wrote a book, you're a financial advisor. If someone wants to take control of their wealth, if someone understands that they are their greatest asset, what are the things that they have to understand about taxes to not just get by, but literally dominate for the future? It's really exactly what you said, Caleb. It's about taking control. When you pay, when you have wealth, when you have income and you know the government, and we live in a country that the government provides a lot of benefits for us. So I'm not advocating no tax payments. I'm advocating pay the tax while the tax is within your control. And that's now. I mean, something very scary happened when we were uh, negotiating the tax, you know, the tax law changes that were hap that happened in December of 2007. We had a Republican Senator Orrin Hatch, who I have immense respect for, but he's the ranking chairperson of the GOP on the Senate Finance Committee. And he proposed the Hatch Amendment, which got basically no news coverage, was yet earth shaking in my profession, in our profession, because he proposed the elimination of the ability to take traditional pre-tax wealth and convert it to Roth wealth, which is, you know, the equivalent of life insurance, cash value life insurance. The Roth is a derivative of the cash value life insurance code. So he proposed the full stop elimination of that ability to do that conversion, which has me shaking in my boots. It did not pass clearly. However, 
anytime these things uh, come to the forefront, which you can see is you can see into the minds of, of, of the Congress. You can see into their minds knowing that they're realizing that conversion to Ross are great for the citizen and terrible for the government. And as soon as that message gets out and people start tra- you know, converting in mass, the government's going to have to stop it because they can't afford it. So if you hear this message and you're saying, my gosh, I have a substantial amount of my wealth in pre-tax 401k, IRA, whatever, this is the time to take control while control still rests in your hands and move that money out, whether it's into life insurance or Roth. You've got to t- pay the tax while taxes are on sale. And right now with the reform we just got to in December of last year, we have some of the lowest tax rates we've had since the 30s. Like this is never going to happen again as long as I'm alive. Now is the time to make it happen. So when you sit down with clients, you're pretty much, you're looking at growth, but you're, it sounds like you, your number one focus is, yeah, we can look at it growth, but if you're, if you're getting 8%, 12% in an account, but the government takes 70% in the future, that's like one of the dumbest things I've heard. You're getting someone's, you're helping people take control over their tax, yes. making sure that they're tax diversified or their money is off the radar or at least not going to be able to be touched when our government needs more money and decides to raise taxes. The government must get the money from the, where the money is. And right now the money's in pre-tax wealth. Right. So there's this window of opportunity. It's like the, the, the window is, the door is closing. You can see the light dimming, but there's still a way to jump out, you know, while the light is still there, there is going to be a point where the, the light is gone yeah. and that's going to be it. Once the tax code has been raised to where it will have to go to, and there is a very clear reasons that this is happening so soon, but once it's happened, you are trapped. You are literally in a tax trap because any way to Sunday for you to get your money out, you will have to pay the tax at whatever the tax rate is then. Understand, Caleb, that the ordinary income tax rate is our highest tax rate that we have. Mm-hmm. And all of this pre-tax wealth is coming out out as ordinary income for the rest of your life. So the second that the the window of opportunity closes and you have left your money pre-tax, then any dollar you take out is getting taxed as an ordinary income dollar and you're trapped at whatever the then tax rates are. Any last piece of advice as it relates to wealth, taxes, like guys, get the book, <laughs> please. Like it will, it will change your life if you read it. And you are going to learn a lot of the stuff that uh, Rebecca talks about. She goes into a lot more tactics and strategies. Um, but any last piece of advice as it relates to the wealth aspect? I think that I think that you hit the nail on the head. You know, Caleb, it's about people that have means want to control those means. You know, nobody looks at saying, "I built an empire," or, "I built you know substantial wealth," or "I built at least enough for me to be comfortable for the rest of my life." And they 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 don't say that thinking that the government has the ability to come in and completely destroy it. They say that thinking that they did the right thing. Unfortunately, all of the conventional financial advice still to this day tells people to maximize their 401k or IRA to this day in 2018 when we have the lowest taxes we've had since the 30s. People are telling you to defer paying the tax and pay it later when later looks ugly, ugly, ugly. It should be malpractice, Caleb. It should be malpractice. What they should say is contribute to the match to get the free money. Don't walk away from the free money. Get the match. Beyond the match, run for the hills on free free tax money. It is it is scary what is going to happen. And so 
build your wealth where you really have control. And the government inside of your wealth account is certainly not control. Look yeah. at the fiscal needs that this country is going into and understand that it is the largest transfer of demographic workers from worker to recipient that we've ever had. One thing that is really striking to me is when FDR signed Social Security into law in 1935, the first baby boomer wasn't born for 11 years until 1946. So the, the Social Security Code was never written with the boomers in mind. The Social Security Code was written, was actually actuarially genius when it was written because at the time it was written, the retirement age was 65, the benefit age was 65, and the average man, if he lived past adolescence, was 62 years old at the time in 1935. And the average woman, if she lived past adolescence, she lived for a little few couple months past 65. So you had this system where everyone universally paid in, but only a few Americans, women, would get it for a few months on average before they passed away. So at the time, it was mathematically genius. Mm -hmm. It's just that now we all live into our 80s on average. And, and so not everybody... Yeah actually can, you know, actually get the benefit at, at the time it was written, but now everybody gets it for 20 years. So it's not possible. And now that we have this largest organic born population going onto it, we're going to have such a tax pressure cooker on our system to support what is going to be paid out that it's just not going to math. The math is not going to add up. It's just that simple. Thank you, Rebecca. One of the last questions that I have, and it has nothing to do with money, but it could. It's totally, <laughs> this is, okay, it, I call it the legacy question. And you have one more day left to live. You're in a room with the people that you love the most. You can't pass down any, anything money related or anything tangible. What kind of conversations are you sharing with the people that you love the most on what you've learned throughout your life? You know, I think especially in this day and time where we are so polarized in America, you know, um, with what everything that's happened this year, I think that no matter what experiences you've had in your life, where you started, where you are, um, that the thing I love about America and so happy and fortunate to be born here is that you can make your own life the way you want it. You know, if you have a dream to go out and, and be on the news and write a book and have a, a message out there, you can do it. If you want to, you know, decide to, to go and become a doctor, you can do it. If you want to stay at home and raise your children and be the best mom and PTA, um, you know, homeroom teacher, you can do that. Whatever you want out of life, you know, it's up to you to make it happen. And there's nobody and there's nothing that can stop you, you know, and, and anybody that tells you otherwise you just got to say, you know what, check, check it. You just check it because there is nothing that somebody cannot accomplish if they are determined to accomplish it. It's all about what we decide in our life. And that's so important. You're, you're a true inspiration. Thank you so much. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rebecca. You can see her passion and and really if you know people that that this message could help, people that, you know, might not be aware of some of the scary tax consequences ahead of time, please let them know. Share this podcast. Um, hopefully it benefits them greatly. Um, I want to just share with you this because next week we have a really, really special conversation. I had to, I got the opportunity to sit down with JG Rosholt who 
is like a second dad to me. He was the CEO of Community First Bank. I started working there at 17. He took me under his wing and you know, at 19 let me take over the bank's investment department and Quite frankly, I learned a lot of this stuff under his supervision. And I, uh, you know, wrote a book and I acknowledge a lot of people generally because so many people, as you can see, uh, went into my journey. But I really named him out because I would not be doing this. He gave me confidence that I didn't even see in my own life. Um, and I, we had the opportunity to sit down a couple weeks ago and talk about the importance of mentorship and, and how vital that is. And so you won't want to miss that. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it was, it's been, it's emotional on, on multiple levels. Also, uh, for those of you that have reached out to me, um, for those of you that have found this podcast organically and reached out, I just want to thank you. Your, your words mean the world. I, I'm committed to do this without hearing from any of you guys, but every time I hear from one of you guys, whether it's people that are listeners and they're giving me good feedback, it's people that are finding us organically, it really makes my day. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm going to continue to strive to provide value, and I hope um, that you can you know, be a better, be better with your money, be better with the resources that you've been given because of this. So go out, have an amazing rest of your week, make someone else's life better because you're in their life. And um, yeah, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. Make sure you press subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast player.